Um, so today's scripture reading will not is not on the bulletin, um, but it's from Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Brothers and sisters, if, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in, in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all his good things with the teacher. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life from the spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good, but we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the, for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Darian. I'm a teaching elder in our presbytery, uh, and I'm not Eric. Uh, most of you know that, uh, but I probably need to say it. Uh, our passage that I'm gonna be speaking from this morning, uh, as we just heard read, is from Galatians chapter six. It's not up on the board, uh, uh, the, the um, display, nor is it in the bulletin. So if you have your Bible, if you have your Bible on your phone, I might encourage you to navigate to, Genesis, uh, to uh, Galatians 6. Um, uh, Eric has been preaching this fall on a series from Genesis, and uh, last week we took a little detour away from that series, and this week, of course, we're going to be doing the same, but hopefully next week Eric will be back uh, continuing in the series uh, from Genesis Last week, Eric talked about leadership and the credibility crisis in the church. If you were here, uh, you remember that he preached from 1 Peter 5. The crisis in leadership and the crisis in the church in general comes from a disconnect between uh, what the church confesses about the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and a failure of living that out in practice. And so th this morning, we're going to look at Galatians chapter 6, where Paul helps the church, that's us, learn how to live out the gospel in community. So the title of my sermon is Life Together. And you might hear in that title, um, the title of a very famous book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so warning, you're going to hear lots of Dietrich Bonhoeffer quotes this morning. Uh, because he wrote this book, Christian Classic Life Together, in which he describes what the Christian community that's trained on the gospel, what it, what it looks like in the nitty-gritty, uh, in, in how we live together. Galatians 6, Paul is saying the same thing. He's talking about life and community with this church 
in Galatia that he has just planted. Here in Galatians chapter 6, Paul is uh, making a change, or he's switching uh, in his letter. He's changing gears. Up to this point in the letter, Paul has been teaching uh, this church what to believe, what, what is true. Specifically, what is true about new identity in Jesus. What happens when the gospel is um, received and does its work in a person. Paul has been talking about that up to this point in Galatians. Here in our passage, Paul uses the imperative, or that's just another way of saying he uses commands. He's instructing. He's telling the church how to live this new life, and how to do it together in community. So if you've received the gospel, if you have come to know Jesus Christ, if this new thing is happening in your life, what should that look like as you come together then as a community, as a group? Um, And this kind of shift uh, is not new. We see this in all of Paul's letters. In fact, often there's this kind of movement in Paul's letters from teaching to action, or from theology to ethics, or perhaps we might say from the indicative, uh, what is, uh, to the imperative, commands, what should be, from what we should believe to how we should live. This is very common in in Paul's letters. And here, in this part of the letter, Paul has shifted to instruction. Uh, And in this morning, we're going to think about how uh, life together, uh, by the power of God's Spirit, uh, how that plays itself out. And I have two points, uh, followed by some sub-points. So I'm a professor, so sorry about the sub-points there. But two points to keep it easy. Number one, Uh, uh, we're going to look at how life together begins and ends with the power of the Spirit. And then number two, we're going to think about how life together is really lived in Christian community. And then in that last part, Christian community, we're just going to look at four instructions, four commands that Paul gives this church uh, describing how we should live together, what our life together should look like. Okay, so first point. Life together begins and ends in the power of the Spirit. In other words, life together, um, uh, our life in Christian community uh, starts with the Spirit of God, it continues in the Spirit of God, and it has its ultimate goal in the Spirit of God. That is to say, we, we, we uh, are alive together and we stay alive together by the power of God's Spirit. Now, I'm going to cheat a little bit. Uh, This is not a passage that was read, but right before Galatians 6, Galatians 5, at the end of Galatians 5, uh, Paul talks about walking in the Spirit. Let me read some of this. This is Galatians 5, starting in verse 16. Now, for some, this is going to be a very familiar passage. Paul says this. He says, I say then, walk by the power of the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. I'll keep going here in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, uh, immoral uh, moral impurity, sorry, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, Strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, 
selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, drunkenness, uh, carousings, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things as I warned you before, so that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. On the other hand, though, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Here, uh, Paul is setting out a contrast between life in the Spirit and life in the flesh. And, and, and if you're a Christian here this morning, perhaps this passage is familiar to you. You've heard this before. Uh, but for those of you who are here who are exploring the faith, uh, maybe some of you are here who have you've grown up in church, but you've been away from church, and now you're checking it out once again. You're considering once again what life as a Christian, life in a Christian community might look like. We're glad that you're here. This is the, the right place to ask those questions. Um, here, it's interesting to see how Paul is setting up the idea of living in a Christian community. The very first and most important thing to realize is that we must be alive together by the Spirit. Here in verses 16 through 18, Paul sets up a contrast. Um, the desires of the Spirit are in conflict with the desires of the flesh. Paul says that they are in opposition to each other. Now, I don't want us to stumble over how Paul describes desires of the flesh. Like, what does that mean, desires of the flesh? Um, the desires of the flesh are not only our bodily desires, impulses, desire for food, sleep, sex, etc., something like that. But when Paul talks about the desires of the flesh, um, there's it, it, much more than that. Paul uses the word flesh to describe um, the ways that we might resist God. Uh, the flesh is the sin-desiring aspect of our whole being, as opposed to our God-desiring aspect. Um, it's important to note here that desires of the flesh for Paul are not just bad things or evil deeds or things that we would call sin readily. Paul also is lumping into this category deeds of the flesh or desires of the flesh like a human being's desire to be really good. In other words, um, self-righteousness or religiousness. Here, those who are following the flesh in Galatians, they are people who are very religious. They trust in themselves. Here, maybe the illustration of the parable of the prodigal son. If you recall Luke 15, there's a younger son and an older son. The younger son, of course, is the, the irreligious son who leaves home uh, rejects his religious upbringing, uh, goes to Las Vegas and, you know, spends his time and his money having a good time until he wakes up in a dumpster in some alley and finds out that wasn't so great. But the older son, of course, is the son who sticks around. He's the religious son. He's the son who does all the right things. He's the son who always says yes to his parents and is always obedient. However, that story tells us that both sons are running from God. We can run away from God by being very bad. Of course, that's intuitive. 
but we can run away from God by being very good as well. Where we try to control God with our obedience, where we try to control God with um, and our righteousness. Paul is talking about the flesh in that way. Flesh incorporates both of those ways of resisting God in our lives. Um, after, after this, Paul then, as we read in verses 19 through 21, describes the desires of the flesh. He has a whole list there of these broken, sinful actions that flow from the flesh. And, and then verses 22 through 25, Paul outlines the actions that come from the Spirit. He calls them the fruit of the Spirit. But note well that we see not only uh, a contrast between two uh, separate kinds of acts, two different sets of actions, actions of the flesh and actions of the spirit, but we also see uh, a contrast in what empowers those actions. So what's really important here is that the actions that flow from the flesh, they are flowing from the, and they are empowered by the flesh. Those actions that flow from the spirit joy, peace, patience, they, they are flowing from the power of the Spirit. And Paul is basically saying there are two ways to live your life, empowered by the flesh or empowered by the Spirit. And, and the first point here is that to live in Christian community means we all need to be alive. We need to be empowered by the Spirit. There's no sense in calling this Christian community if we're not empowered by the Spirit individually, made alive by what God has done for us. Uh, there at the end of chapter 5, Paul kind of summarizes his whole letter in verse 25. Let me read that again. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. In that first phrase, Paul summarizes the first part of the letter. If we live by the Spirit, we can only be made alive or set to rights uh, or made part of the family of God or have a new identity in Christ. All, that can only be true by the power of the Spirit. And this sums up Paul's teaching. He's saying, if you have come to know Christ, if you have rested in Him, your confidence is in Him, then you are alive by the power of the Spirit. Paul says, if you then are alive by the power of the Spirit, second half, second phrase, then walk in the Spirit or keep in step with the Spirit. Here, Paul is summarizing the second half of the letter. These are the actions, the ethics, the imperative. If you are alive by the Spirit, then keep in step with the Spirit. Paul is saying, if this is true of us, if we have been made alive by the Spirit, then we should live in a new way. Um, what's interesting here, this word, uh, walk in the Spirit, I, I rather the translation keep in step with the Spirit because this is not the typical Greek word for walk. It's actually a word that means march in line, uh, get in, uh, fall in behind your commanding officer and walk, obediently follow the lead of your superior. Uh, this is a strong word. If we are alive in the Spirit, this should change our life. We should follow the Spirit's lead. So that's the first and most important basic point that our life together begins and ends in the Spirit. We need to be made alive. But this leads to uh, what Paul says in Galatians 6, that life together, this is the second point, life together is lived out in Christian community. 
So walking in step with the Spirit cannot happen in isolation. It must take place in community. It's, it's not as if we should go off and perfect our spirituality uh, in, in, in private. Uh, sometimes I think that's a misunderstanding of Christianity, that it's like an individual sport, uh, that we go off on our own and read our Bible and pray a lot and uh, practice holiness. Uh, Christianity is the ultimate team sport. <laughs> we have to do this together. There have to be other people. Like, I need to hear this sermon because I love my books. Um, I love people too, a couple people. Uh, but I, I, I love my books sitting in my office being alone. And so I fall prey to this. So I'm actually preaching to myself at this moment. Walking in the Spirit is not something we do alone. And I think, I think we could name this as, a, as like a cultural idolatry, especially in the West. That individualism, me doing it all by myself, that that actually is pushing against the reality of Christianity the reality of the gospel. And, and here, in Galatians 6, we need, we need to hear uh, the pushback of the gospel, that we actually need each other. Uh, Richard Hayes, he's a New Testament scholar, he comments on this passage. He says this, Paul insists that the church is to be a community in which believers share responsibility for one another's lives. Life in the Spirit is not a life of lonely striving, not a life of uh, restricted to a zone of privacy. Rather, it is characterized by interdependence of its members. This interdependence entails not only mutual support in times of need, but also the willingness to confront one another when necessary with a word of admonition. <laughs> now, this is a helpful but, to me, frustrating reflection. Um, I struggle with this idea of interdependence. Frankly, um, I just, I don't want to be vulnerable. I, 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 think, uh, I, I think I'm maybe guilty of Midwesterner idolatry or something. That's where I grew up. Um, I, I, I think that I can always pull myself up from any hardship if I just try a little harder. I'm not, I'm not sure if you resonate with that or not. Um, I don't want to be a burden to anybody else. I don't want to have a need that's so messy that it intrudes on your life. But that's exactly what the gospel calls us to. In fact, in the last couple of months of my family's life, someone in our family has had an injury and been in the hospital, and we've had some significant needs that have been met by a community. And though I kind of hate being vulnerable and needing something from others. It's, it's been a beautiful season of being loved and cared for. And what's really amazing is seeing how blessed and how full of life other people are when they can step in and meet my need. That does not compute to me, by the way. I've been a Christian for a long time, but that still doesn't compute to me. The gospel is still foreign to me in that logic. But it's the logic uh, that, that calls us uh, to living together um, and being vulnerable and caring for each other's needs. To keep in step with the Spirit, we need to share our Christian life together. Mutual responsibility, interdependence, mutual support, willingness to confront. Um, so, so Paul gives us four um, instructions here 
regarding how to live out this life together. So let me just go through these four. Uh, and and I, I, all of them are things that we must do, but I want to say they're all things that the Spirit empowers us to do. They're not things that we can actually do on our own. But nonetheless, here are these instructions, these commands, these challenging things. First of all, it's restoring. Restoring. Look at verse 1. This is uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It says this, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken, you can also translate that caught, caught in any wrongdoing or sin, trespass, Uh, if anyone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you will not be tempted. Here in verse 1, Paul commands the one who is spiritual, now we're going to put spiritual over here in scare quotes and come back to it in a second, but you who are spiritual, uh, the Christian, the one who's keeping step with the spirit, That person is to restore one who is caught in sin. Uh, In Hayes' terms, he calls this the task of confronting. Notice, first of all, the person who is caught um, or overtaken in a transgression is a fellow believer. It's someone in the community. Um, This could be you or me. Uh, so, so maybe just a comment. Again, if, if, if you're not a Christian and you're here uh, uh, investigating Christianity, thinking about what it means to follow Jesus, um, th- this is a really good moment to just to stop, time out, and say, look, um, Christians and Christianity is actually not about getting your act together. Uh, being a Christian isn't about being sinless. Uh, Being a Christian is rather the slow and deliberate process of living into the truth of the gospel, the truth that you are actually more sinful than you ever thought, which is offensive (laughs) and and hard to wrestle with. But it's also the realization that you're more loved and cared for than you could have ever have imagined. That's the gospel. And so I don't know what you think you know or have heard about Christianity, but I think that's a, a misunderstanding. That somehow when we become Christians, we have our lives together. And what we do on Sunday morning is we all look good together, you know. And we congratulate each other on how good we look in our lives. But that's really empty. That's not what this is about at all. And in fact, the gospel calls us to this life together, realizing that we're broken. And that we're going to... Keep feeling and experiencing that brokenness until Christ returns, but we're not trapped there. We have this hope that our lives can be new. Okay, so, so uh, Paul says, if someone is overtaken or caught in any wrongdoing, a transgression, notice that word caught or uh, overtaken. Um, this, this does not mean a, aha, I caught you kind of moment, right? Paul is not talking about a community where we become, you know, officials. I like football uh, officials, you know, the guy with the zebra, you know, stripes on. He's the guy who throws the yellow flag. This is, imagine a game of football if everyone on the field was an official. No teams, just people throwing flags at each other. Oh, you did that wrong. Oh, you said the wrong word. Oops, you went to the wrong movie. Slept with the wrong person. Oh my gosh, that's bad. You, You see what I'm saying? Paul is not saying that the community of our life together doesn't become this kind of sin police where we are instructed to 
you know, watch each other's thoughts and actions and then, you know, ratchet it down on each other or something. Like a concentration camp, maybe that's over-the-top illustration. But what a dreadful community that would be where we're continually focused on each other's failures and always pointing them out. I, I, I don't want to push on this too hard, but some Christian communities begin to look like that, and it's, and it's tragic. Um, rather, the word caught really could be translated trapped, or better, entangled. Sin does that. Think of Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, where Christians are called to drop our chains, remove anything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles, same word. Sin entangles us. We get stuck in sin. Sin is like quicksand. The harder we fight against it, the worse it gets. We sink deeper. I hope you hear an air of compassion here. When someone is overtaken in a sin or caught in a sin, it's not the moment to say, ha, found you out. Oh no, it's a moment to say, oh my dear brother, let me throw you a lifeline. Let me help, let me care, because being caught and trapped in sin is a desperately dark place to be. One of our former pastors here at the church once told me something that rings in my ears all the time. He said, Darian, never forget what it's like to be lost. Never forget what it's like to be in the dark. Never forget what it was like before you were a Christian. Because then with great compassion, you can care for others who are experiencing that brokenness and you, you know, will be able to navigate away from pride or arrogance. Here, Paul is talking about someone who's gotten stuck into something they shouldn't get stuck in. Sin is, is, is something you become entangled in. You're enslaved to it. And, and really, our response shouldn't be, well, look at that guy, you know, uh, I can't believe he keeps on doing what he's doing. I can't believe he's still in that sin. He needs to clean up his act. But guess what, right? In a moment like that, chances are on his own, he can't. In fact, that's the point of being dead in trespasses and sins. You can't make yourself alive. You need the grace of Jesus to transform your life. It's not about being better at that point. It's about surrendering and being saved or being found, being restored. And that's what Paul is calling the spiritual one to here. Again, someone who is overtaken in wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person. The spiritual person is one commanded to restore a fellow believer in the spirit of gentleness. And restoration is the focus here. Dealing with sin um, should always have restoration in mind. In fact, the word restore is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe mending the fishing nets or repairing something or putting something back into order. Dealing with sin in our community and our life together is not about punishing the guilty. Rather, it's about reconciling the one who has gotten caught and trapped and entangled. Uh, in order to restore a fellow believer, we need to have the courage to make the judgment that they are in need in the beginning. Now, this is going to get uncomfortable. Um, 
to have the courage in Christian community to tell someone or to confront someone in, in their sin or in their brokenness, that takes courage. That's very uncomfortable. And here, one of the first quotes from Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he, he says this. He says, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. Do you hear that? Uh, I think it's a cultural assumption of ours that uh, not saying something about a friend's bad behavior or not rocking the boat uh, over someone's sin is actually a kindness. But Bonhoeffer calls such leniency a cruelty. We are being cruel toward one another when we fail to have the courage to identify sin and brokenness in our lives and to restore one who has fallen away, stumbled, or sinned. In reality, the reprimand of the spiritual one, the one walking in step with the Spirit, is compassionate. In fact, Proverbs 27, 6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. There's something faithful about a a dearly beloved friend who has your best in mind, has your restoration in mind, even when they say something hard, when they say something that's confronting to us. That's a love. I have people like this in my life that will tell me, you know, when I have salad in between my teeth or will tell me when, whatever, you know, I'll stop the illustrations there. Uh, That is such a blessing to have someone who is courageous like that. Paul goes on to say that this restoration must be done in meekness and gentleness and humility. And and, um, this is a character quality of those who are filled with the Spirit. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit in chapter 5. Meekness or gentleness, restoration in the community, and even the confrontation in the community should be done in meekness and in gentleness. And in a way that we're not considering ourselves better than others. Um, This kind of confrontation, this kind of restoration can't happen if we are thinking, well, my sin is not so bad. Ooh, that person's sin is really bad. I need to go and help them. That's not going to to accomplish um, restoration. In fact, another quotation from Bonhoeffer, he says, if my sinfulness appears to me, to be any, in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of others, I am still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. How can I possibly serve another person in unfeigned humility if I seriously regard his sinfulness as worse than my own? Notice what the gospel does in our community. It draws us together such that we would, um, that we would restore each other even when restoration means confronting each other, and this done in humility and gentleness. So restoring, restoring. Look at verse 2, bearing. Paul says this in verse 2, all the way through verse 5, carry one another's burdens or bear one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work. And then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own 
load. So next characteristic here is bearing, bearing each other's burdens. Now, one thing, quickly so it doesn't distract us, it seems like Paul is saying one thing in verse 2 and then the exact opposite thing in verse 5. Do you see that? Verse 2, he says, bear one another's burdens or carry one another's burdens. But in verse 5, it says, each will have to carry his own load. Okay, which is it, Paul? Do we carry our own loads or do we carry each other's loads? Um, Number one, different words for burden there. And number two, Paul is saying in verse two, yes, we carry each other's burdens. We come to each other's aid. We care for one another. And in verse four and five, he's saying, look, don't compare burdens. Like my burden is worse than your burden. So I need to be helped before you. I remember again earlier when a member of my family was in hospital and having some difficulties. I was interacting with a friend in um, Kentucky and someone in his family had had brain surgery recently. And I started a text saying, well, I've not experienced anything like you and your family have just now, but here's what's going on with us. And he immediately emailed back, uh, texted back and said, there's no competition in our, in our pain. There's no competition in our difficulty. We need the restoration of Christ. And I think that's what Paul is getting at at the very end there in verse 5. We don't compare um, what we're going through. In fact, the call here is to bear one another's burdens. Along with restoring in verse 1, life together requires carrying or bearing one another's burdens. So the one who is spiritual, those who have, again, been renewed by the Holy Spirit, uh, we need to acknowledge that to be renewed by the Holy Spirit, to, to have life in the Spirit, it means Jesus first has removed our burdens from us. He's removed the burden of sin from us. Jesus took upon himself the burden of guilt and shame and, and the resulting burden of death and condemnation. Jesus has changed our status from slave to sons and daughters. Though that's true in our Christian community, we still have burdens to bear. And these burdens might not necessarily be sinful burdens. They could be burdens of temptation uh, or the consequences of, of our, our actions, physical sickness or limitations, mental health, family crisis, financial difficulty. These are burdens. Paul also is not interested in identifying the burden per se. Like, what is it? Is it big? Is it small? Let's categorize the burdens. Paul doesn't spend any time in that, but what he does spend time doing is saying that Christians must bear each other's burdens. We help each other. We care for each other. Again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, illustrates this well in the following quote. He says, It is remarkable that the scriptures talk so often about forbearance. They, the scriptures, are capable of expressing the whole work of Jesus Christ in this one word, forbearance. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. That's Isaiah 53 that Bonhoeffer is quoting. He says, therefore, the Bible can characterize the whole life of the Christian as carrying the cross. It is the community of the body of Christ that is here realized, the community of the cross in which one must experience the burden, let me read that again, the community of the cross in which one must experience the burden of the other. If one, uh, if one were not to experience this, bearing the burden of another, it would not be Christian community, full stop. The Christian community is characterized by 
bearing one another's burdens, caring for one another, coming up alongside one another. So restoring and bearing. Uh, The third, if you look in verse 6, is sharing. Look at verse uh, 6 through 8. Paul says this, Let the one who is taught the word share all his good things with the teacher. And then he goes into an illustration, don't be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Uh, But it's verse 6 there that I want to focus on. It's the command, let us, or let the one who is taught the word share all of his good things with the teacher. Uh, Now, this is the part of the sermon where we can talk about Eric's yearly salary, right? Our pastor and how he is paid and cared for. Thank you for laughing. That is kind of, well, only kind of a joke. Um, That's part of it, actually. Uh, Paul does talk about honoring elders um, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. In fact, verse 17, 1 Timothy 5, 17, um, Paul says this, elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor. I like to translate that last phrase as they are worthy of honor and honorarium, uh, both honor in the community but also care. Paul is instructing those who are in the church to have life together, community together. He's instructing that those who are taught in the church, and who are those taught in the church? That's all of us, guys. Uh, We are all taught um, in the church. We are all in a posture of receiving uh, both gospel, preaching, communicating, but also demonstration of the gospel before us. We are all receiving that. If you are instructed and taught in the church, then we are to share those good things with those who have taught us, who have demonstrated the gospel for us. And this is not just money. It's encouragement. It's honor. It's hospitality, respect, love, and care. Throughout history, uh, the history of the church, teachers have been responsible before God to keep the correct vision of the church in mind, this gospel transformed community moving toward the glory of God. They work hard to live out this vision and communicate it for the church. And perhaps this is like especially appropriate for Trinity just now because just last week, Eric encouraged us to enter a season of nominating elders in our community. He encouraged us to pray this week, to discern um, So the church can discern and identify leaders in our community who walk in step with the Spirit. So have you been taught? If you have, share those good things that God is doing in your life and through you with your teachers, with those who have encouraged you. Let me ask you this question. Can you teach? Can you teach? Can you be an example to others? Well, be courageous then and pray that The Spirit of God might lead you to find your place of service, even in this community. This is what our life together looks like. This is an important aspect of our life together because as we are taught and we reflect what we've taught and give good things back to those who teach us, we are always reminding ourselves of this new life that we live. And why is that necessary? It's necessary because... The world isn't as it should be. This leads us to our fourth and final command that Paul gives in verse 9. Don't tire. Verse 9, he says, Let us not get tired of doing good, 
for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Paul realizes that, you know, the world isn't as it should be. Um, There's brokenness all around us. But we have to acknowledge that even, not only the world, but our Christian community, Trinity itself, is not what it will fully be. It's not quite what it should be yet. We've not arrived yet, as it were. Even realizing that, though, we're not overwhelmed with discouragement because we know the thing that God has started in us will come to fruition. It will come to fullness. In fact, Paul says it here, um, do not, let us not t- get tired of doing good for we will reap at the proper time. In fact, really important phrase there, proper time. That's like God's providential time, special time when, when God sees fit to bring all things to their consummation. Um, we will see a harvest in our lives. We will see character. We will see a community that is transformed. Don't give up. Don't become overwhelmed or discouraged. Therefore, Paul can conclude this passage then in verse 10. He says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially those who belong in the household of faith. Now, this isn't an excuse not to care for those outside the church. That's not at all what Paul is saying. But he's saying, surely, surely it should start inside the church. Um, a witness. We, we should care for each other. We should be such a community. Um, our life together should be such that the world is seeing this new reality, this new reality of the gospel lived out among us. Now, these last four instructions, all of these are necessary for our life together to restore, to bear, uh, to share, and to not grow weary, to not become tired, not tiring. All of these are necessary. Um, But I think the appropriate place to conclude here is that really there is only one person who can restore. There's only one person who can bear. There's only one person who really shares his life with ours, and there's really one who never, never grows tired of doing good, and it's our beautiful Savior, Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can restore us. The psalmist says, he restores my soul. He leads me along the right paths for his namesake, Psalm 23. Peter says in 1 Peter, the God of all grace who called you by his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore and establish, strengthen and support you after you have suffered for a little while. Jesus is the only one who gave himself on our behalf. The the hymn that we sing, he has borne our burdens to Calvary. The psalmist says, blessed be the Lord. Uh, Day after day, he bears our burdens. God is our salvation. That's Psalm 68. Peter in 1 Peter also says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus also is the one who shares his life with us so that we might have life. Paul says, He did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. It's Romans 8 and again in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, For You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. And of course, Jesus is the only one who never tires of doing good. In Christ, we see the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. In Christ, that is true. May our community and may our life together bear out the truth of the gospel. May we 
do these things. But as we strive to be a community of the gospel, let us look to this beautiful Savior who makes us alive by the power of the Spirit and empowers us to keep step with the Spirit so that our life together uh, might be in His name. Our life together might be a witness to the world um, of what really the transformation of the gospel looks like in our midst. Let's pray together. Father, as, as we have considered uh, Paul's commands from Galatians 6 about what a new community looks like, um, we, we feel the burden, uh, of the burden that we, we actually can't do these things. We are overwhelmed by them. So Father, we pray that as, as we see the need uh, to live a transformed life, to walk in keep, uh, to, to keep in step with and walk uh, in step with the Spirit, Lord, that, that we would look to our beautiful Savior, that we would look to Christ, the one who empowers us and transforms us, that we might live a new life and experience a new community with each other. Lord, we pray that these words would sink into us and by the power of your Spirit, they would bear fruit in us and bear fruit in our community. Lord, look upon us with compassion, restore us, and set us on mission that we might love each other and love the world around us uh, so that this gospel of yours uh, would be known far and wide. Lord, we thank you for your word and we pray that it would restore us and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.